But hey, pre-ordering books is weird, so I'm giving everybody an incentive to pre-order it before February 3rd. If you do, you can enter to win this epic trip we're giving away for you and a friend to go to France for a week. You're going to have a one-on-one trip with people to Europe? Just a random person who enters? Yeah. We're going to pick a random person. They're going to go with their friend for a week, and then I'm going to meet them for dinner. Dirt, why don't we think of these ideas? Man, what a great, great idea. idea. Yeah, that's, that's okay. Our next book, we're just going to say, you know, put your order number, and you can come and, like, we'll slam a beer, whoever drinks it faster, or something like that. I'm not, I'm not taking people to France, but that's <laughs> I'll take you to the that's, woods. that's pretty impressive. We can, go, we can go camp. No, I'm not even going to I'm not going <laughs> to commit to camp with somebody. <laughs> Are you kidding me? All you with get the, is a beer. With the wrong person, that'd be horrible. I could I could slug a beer with anybody. Yeah. Like camping with somebody sacred for me. Welcome to the aggressive life. You know, recent study said that 42% of podcasters listen on their commute to and from work. That might be you right now. Get to work. Get to work. What are you doing? Get to work. My gosh, chop, chop. Some of you go into an office building. Some of you are going to a factory. Some going to a construction site, a retail store, restaurant, school, whatever it is. You might be dreading, dreading it. You might be excited. You might be counting down the dates to the next vacation, the next weekend. But Dirt and I are here to save the day, aren't we, Dirt? Us and Jordan. Us and Jordan, yeah. right? You can't leak the podcast. I guess oh, they already whoops. know that because the word is on the it is thing. In the title. It is. Yeah. It is on the title. You, you and I actually are podcasting and working same time. I know we've gotten all the way to the top of the food chain. It's, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> and pretty impressive. Work is a huge part of life. Most of us are going to spend half, one third. I was going to say half. Some of us might be half. Would not be a very good life, but at least a third of our lives there, something to the tune of 90,000 hours or so. Our guest today, Jordan Rayner, thinks your work matters perhaps way, way more than you think it does. We've had Jordan on before. He's an author, podcaster, one of the leading voices at the Faith at Work movement. His work has helped millions of people around the world connect their faith to their work life, especially for people who work in, quote unquote, secular job settings, people who are believers, and they're wondering, how do I mesh my faith with my job, which might be standing at a drill press or hitting quarterly quotas. His newest work, The Sacredness of Secular Work, has the power to change the way you think about your nine to five or your eight to six. Even if you aren't a pastor or especially because you aren't one, please don't become one. It's it's an awful job for a lot of people. It is. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that'd probably be an interesting podcast in and of itself. No matter what your line of work is, we're going to try to give you some value today. We're going to ask him to unpack his ideas. And so let's get to him right now. He's the chairman, executive chairman of Threshold 360, a venture-backed tech startup. He previously ran as CEO. He's been selected twice as Google Fellow, served the George W. Bush White House, and he's an aggressive life alum. I know it's the most important thing in his entire resume. Welcome back to the aggressive life, Jordan Rayner. Feeling aggressive. Thrilled to be here. 
Are you Thanks for having me. Are you Brian. feeling the testosterone coursing through your veins oh my right now? Gosh. I love it. In in a, in a household full of women, this is a welcome uh, welcome retreat here. So you do. got um, all girls in your house, or your wife and your daughters? All girls. My wife, three daughters, nine, seven, and four. Lots of estrogen. Let me tell you a little secret. Let me tell you a little yep. secret. I don't know if you're like most guys, but a lot of guys really want to have at least a son pass on the family. Oh, I have no interest in learning to parent another gender. Hard pass. Oh, well, okay. Well, I was going to say this. I was going to even go another step. Aside from parenting other gender, uh, you know, I, when I got married to Lib, I migrated to her family for family functions and all that stuff. And that's generally what happens. You never lose your girls. You just add your family because they get married to somebody, hopefully, and your family gets bigger. Where, where your boys, you have a great time with them. I have a great time with my son, love them dearly. But, you know, um, boys, uh, they detach more than the girls do. And uh, so you you are a blessed man to have three daughters. <laughs> I am indeed. Yeah. So... People don't normally think of words like sacred and secular fitting together. It's on the on the cover of your book. Just give us your little stump speech on sacred and secular, what they are and why they work together. Yeah, I love that you asked this because definitions of words matter. We, we throw around all these churchy words and never define them, and that thwarts a lot of our understanding and hope. That, that, that word secular literally means without God. And for years, I believed that my work as a tech entrepreneur was secular, but we Christians believe that God is with us literally wherever we go through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the only thing you need to do to instantly make your quote unquote secular workplace sacred is walk through the front door or log on to Zoom. That's it, right? Now, clearly some work is off limits for Christ followers, but I'm going to go ahead and assume that our listeners are not peddling pornography or exploiting the poor, right? Something that overtly contradicts God's words. And if that's true and you're doing your best to live unto God, then in the words of Charles Spurgeon, nothing is secular and everything is sacred. There's no question about the sacredness of your seemingly secular work believer. I think the more interesting question is, and the most life-changing question is, all right, how exactly does that sacred work matter beyond the present? How it, does the Zoom meeting I lead, the Uber I drive, the diaper I change matter for eternity? And that's the question I'm helping readers answer in this book. That's I like that. What a great, great understanding for us. Whenever we enter the room, those of us who are followers of Christ and have the Holy Spirit, which is a core tenement of Christianity, versus other religions. We're not going someplace to encounter the Spirit. We're not going someplace to have the, the Spirit be with us. You actually possess the Holy Spirit, which gives you superhuman abilities. You're not necessarily going to be in a Marvel comic movie, but you're going to have abilities you don't have. What a, what a great reminder. When, when you enter the room, God enters the room. Amen. Wow. Amen. Yeah, that's it. It's that simple. It's not that simple, right? We could go a lot of layers deeper, but at the most fundamental level, that's what makes the work of the Christ follower sacred. I like that. It's a tie to uh, the kind of faith that I think attracts our listeners here to the aggressive life. First, a lot of people just aggressive. What does that have to do with having a good life or or even a faith filled life? But it's because I'm trying to combat this idea of faith being passive, faith being your beliefs, faith being your morality. And a lot of folks who have that thought are in this real defensive posture against 
the quote unquote world or the darkness yes. or the second Come world. On. Oh no, oh no, this stuff might happen. Hey, hey, here's an idea. You and I, are, uh, if you're a person of faith, are supposed to be people of light. A candle always wins. My Bic lighter always beats the dark. We need to be in a more offensive, forward-leaning position as believers, those of us who are, recognizing we've got goods that other people don't have, and they need to have. We want them to have it, and to not be afraid of certain situations. I love that. The problem, though, is for the last 300 years for the first time in church history, we've begun preaching an abridged version of the gospel. That's all about what Jesus has saved us from and says nothing about what he has saved us for, right? The way we preach the gospel in our churches today is Jesus came to save me from my sins. That's gloriously true, but it's only partially true. The unabridged gospel that starts in Genesis 1 and goes all the way to Revelation 22 says that God created you to rule with him, to fill the earth and have dominion over it. See Genesis 1 and understanding that now I can better understand the call to the aggressive life, if you will. What what Paul means in Ephesians 2.10 when he says that, okay, hey, we haven't been saved by our works, but we have been created to do the good works God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not sitting here waiting for heaven to drop from the sky. The good news of the gospel is not that I get to go to heaven when I die, but that I get to cultivate heaven on earth until I die through the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, in my home, in my job, everywhere I go, because everywhere I step is sacred ground under the lordship of King Jesus. All right, now you're now you're educating the podcast host. This is really great. What a what a great line. Saved from, yes, but saved for. What is the point? What are we saved for? I love that. I, that that is going to preach and I'm glad I just had this original thought on my own. Sometimes just ori- <laughs> sometimes they're just original thoughts come to me. <laughs> And, just come out and it just came out of the sky. Yeah. And man, people are going to know how brilliant I am when I tell them that. That was great. Inspired. Inspired. <laughs> hey, you were, you're in your bio, you're a Gordon, or excuse me, a Google fellow. I assume yeah. that that means that they asked you to come speak to their employees and do one of those workshops for them. Right. Uh, actually, it's not. Uh, no, it's not. They, just gave me a, they just gave me a bunch of money to go play around with their products and do innovative stuff with it. Oh, I want to be a Google fellow. What do I got yeah, to be? I, I want to be. <laughs> All right. I was going to say, because <laughs> I was going to say, if you had a speaking gig with Google, I was going to be, I was going to ask you how the rank and file Googlers are in terms of reacting to faith concepts these days. Well, I can answer that. Yeah. I actually have done Q and A's with uh, Christians at Google and Meta, Amazon, um, man. And these are some of the, the, the Christians I'm most excited about encouraging in the world because so many Christians today are isolating from the world, trying to figure out how to withdraw and um, either get a job in quote-unquote full-time ministry or get a job at a business led by a Christian, a place that better quote-unquote shares their values. Listen, God might be calling you to do that, but probably not based on the balance that we see in scripture. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed that the Father would send his followers into the world as he had entered into our darkness, right? We are called to be salt and light, and light doesn't shine in an already lit room, right? And so I find that believers in these places of work, especially big corporations, 
are fully engaged there because they understand, number one, the first commission we see Genesis 1 to fill the earth and make it more useful for other human beings' benefit and enjoyment. And number two, the call to darkness, to shine our light in dark places, not places that are already filled with light, which tragically so many Christians are doing today. I spent a few days at Google a few years ago. It was uh, myself and and some other uh some other senior leaders of uh, very large churches, we got to kind of hobnob with Google uh, Brass and they led us through some workshops. And um, I was really surprised by the believers, and this is the rank and file folks. So the guy who set us up is a good friend of mine, has been on the podcast, Kirk Perry, who ran 98% of all of Google's profit. They poached wow. him from PNG, and then he ran basically their web advertising, their search advertising, getting companies together. I mean, he was he made all their money for them, right? So, and he's great, great, faithful guy. And when we went and interacted with those folks. I was really surprised one how faithful they were. The 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 rank and files who were there with the giving presentations and helping walk us through exercise, and then two, I was really uh, fascinated by how uninnovative they are in relationship to their faith and their church life. Like they were all about pushing the edge of the envelope as related to their job and the internet and technology. But when it came to matters of church, they were like small and low tech. Don't understand why you do anything different. It was, it was interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, I know I pushed, I pushed on them a bit and uh, they never had an answer. I just, I just, found it fascinating that in their situation, they had different modes of operation of faith. And I say they, I'm talking about three people, right? Yeah, they sure, had different right. modes of operation of faith for how, how their faith participates in the work situation, the church situation. I found that interesting and actually, quite frankly, depressing. Why depressing? Because the way I interpreted it was, you're bringing your best to your job. You're innovating and trying to push things to your job. But when it comes to the job of God, you just expect, you expect God to be in the 1800s. You, yeah. you, you, you expect like, uh, you just expect like no innovation, no drive. Let's just yeah. get together and sing Kumbaya. Yeah. I, I was surprised by it. Thank God for people uh, like my friend Neil Alston at um, Abide who are innovating here. He's an ex-Googler, left to create this app called Abide, which is crushing it now and and really taking off to innovate the way that we engage with God's word. So, yeah, I'm thankful for people like Neil. Yeah, and the truth is, you know, Google, a lot of people think, okay, these tech companies are just godless places. They're not. God's light is all over the place. You Amen. just got to know how to look for it. So let's say, Amen. let's say I am going to my tech company or I'm going to the drill press. Is there a little pep talk I should be giving myself in the morning as I go, reframing for myself what it is I'm doing and why I'm doing it? Yeah, no doubt. Um, I'll, let me get theological, then we'll get yes, uh, we'll get practical here. You know, we've got to make this leap, as I said a few minutes ago, from this abridged gospel that's become so dominant in our churches to the unabridged gospel. The dominant version of the gospel we hear in our church is that Jesus came to save you and me from our sins. It's good news for our souls and the spiritual realm, but the rest of creation be damned. If that's the full extent of the gospel, which, spoiler alert, it's not, your work there's no pep talk that's going to motivate you to go to work today because your work only matters 
when you leverage it to the instrumental end of saving souls. And frankly, if that's true, most of us are wasting the vast majority of our time. I quote this one theologian in The Sacredness of Secular Work who says that the value of secular work depends upon the value of creation, which makes sense because the secular world, we're dealing with the material world and creation, and the value of creation depends on what God will save in the end. And the story of scripture is that this earth is eternal. Yes, Jesus came to seek and save the lost souls, see Luke 19, 10, but he didn't just come to seek and save lost souls. Colossians 1:20 tells us that Christ came to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. In other words, the gospel is not just good news for our souls. It is good news for the cosmos, for the entire world, for all of creation. And if that's true, then the work you do with the quote unquote spiritual realm, saving souls, writing checks to your church, whatever, and the material world that Christ's blood redeemed, typing on MacBooks made from the aluminum of this earth, planting a garden, hunting a bear, whatever, must matter deeply to God because Jesus' blood and sacrifice paid to redeem all of it. We as Christians have to value most highly what God most values as determined by what the resurrection won back, right? And the story of scripture is he won back all. Jesus is Lord over every square inch of creation. His blessings have come to make God's blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so our work with the material world matters greatly to God. What contribution to the conversation around work were you looking to make that hasn't been made already? There's been some books, not a lot, actually, there's oh, not yeah. a lot, but there's there's some. Tim Keller wrote one a few years ago. There's some others. Yeah. What, what's the unique kind of thumbprint do you think that you're bringing to this conversation? Yeah, I think the argument that I'm elevating that, listen, there's nothing new under the sun, right? But the argument that I'm elevating that's been buried in other books like Tim's great one, like John Mark Comer's great one is this Christians are at a place where we understand that our work matters for eternity because we can leverage it to the instrumental end of sharing the gospel. But if that's it, then most of us are wasting 99.9% of our time. And I think this is rooted in this very new lie in the church that says that the great commission to save souls is the totality of Christian mission. That's a lie and a really dangerous one for a whole lot of reasons. Number one, Jesus didn't say that the call to make disciples was the only call of our life. In fact, he said, make disciples and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you to do. Number two, ironically, it makes us less effective at the Great Commission when we treat it as the only commission, which we could get into if you want. And then finally, number three, it blocks us from seeing how our work matters for eternity. I quote this one pastor I'm not going to mention by name uh, because I agree with him on a lot of other things, but I mentioned him in the book. He says, hey, the consequences of your job will not matter. The consequences of your mission, and here he's talking about the Great Commission, will. That's a lie, right? The truth we see in scripture is our work has instrumental value of carrying out the Great Commission and intrinsic value because it's what God created us to do pre-sin, see Genesis 1. It's what he redeemed us to do after Christ came to earth, see Ephesians 2. And oh, by the way, spoiler alert, what we're going to be doing for eternity on the new earth, see Isaiah 65. Amen. Okay, so why aren't you sharing that name? Because that's probably going to go right into my next question. Why wouldn't you share? They, they, they wrote in the book. Why I'll do it. You tell it. Yeah, who is it? I'll do it. So this is Rick Warren. This is straight from Purpose Driven Life. Yeah, one of the best selling books yeah. of all time. Uh, he says that the gospel 
The whole reason, quote unquote, Christ came to earth was to save you and me. No, it's not. And by, by the way, right. if it is, then Jesus is only a partial winner. Because in the beginning, God called all things good, spiritual and material, right? Yes, yes. Satan yep. broke all things in Genesis 3. And so if the redeemer that God promised doesn't truly crush Satan's head and win back everything that was broken at the fall, then God has failed. And that's what we're accusing him of when we say that the whole reason Christ came to earth was to save you and me. Or my favorite that I hear from pastors all the time, the only two things that last for eternity are God's word and people. That's a lie. This earth is material. Why that matters, I'll give you two reasons. Number one, it makes more the resurrection. It says that, no, we believe that Christ's victory on the cross was sufficient to redeem everything in this world. And number two, our work with that material world matters. Going back to what we said a few minutes ago, right? Yep. Uh, that's why this matters so much that we get this right. And so, but Rick Warren's argument, listen, it's it, following his logic. It makes sense. He says, hey, Jesus only came to save you and me. And so the consequences of your job will not last. That, those two things together make sense. But if the good news of the gospel is Jesus came to make all things new, then my work with all things matters to God. My work matters 100% of the time to God, not just the 1% of my time I spend walking somebody through the Romans road. Yeah, we, we could and probably should go down the rabbit hole right now. Uh, we talked about this a little bit when we had John Burke on. We had, on, had him on twice, the you know near-death experience guru. I think we've done a really huge disservice in painting heaven in an inaccurate way and even painting heaven as the destination. You know, people, there was an old song, this, this, this world is not my home. And I hate to break to you. It is. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it is. It is. Not only are you living here right now, it's your home, but it was created to be your home. God created the earth and put Adam and Eve on it. And a theology of the new heavens and new earth means that Jesus is redeeming and restoring all things, including all physical things that are with us. So there's a, there's a, there's a big outage here. And this is my way to tell you, dude, we really need your voice here. I'm glad you wrote this book. In fact, the folks you just mentioned, I know, I know them all personally, or at least knew them. Tim is gone now. Um, I probably knew him least of the other two, but, um, they're not qualified to write this book. Why do you say that? Because they're not practitioners? Um, because they haven't had the kind of job that other people have had yeah. to be able to yeah. connect the dots. It's, a, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, Tim, Tim, Tim just wanted to read books all day. And, and he, he did, and we needed him to do that. It was part of his work, actually. And yep. he did amazing things, and it's a massive, massive blow to us to have him gone. We need more of him. He was a gift. But that's not the kind of job that people can relate to. John Mark, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a monk. He wants to be yep. a monk. That, yep. that, that's where he God is. Bless him. And, and Love him. He's yeah, a friend of mine. Love him. You know? Um, and Rick was just nonstop, build the church, do purpose-driven life. And building the church, I'm, that's kind of my my job. There is there is business-like elements to it, but it's just not the same as someone like you who've had to give yourself a pep talk when you've gone in to meet a quarterly sales earnings and you've had to go in and you know sell investors on a thing. That's just the kind of work that people who write books from a Christian perspective just haven't, just have never done. So it's all yes. theory. So I, I'm really excited you building into people with a work experience that's more relatable to the average person. 
Oh, I appreciate you saying that. And I, I'm thrilled that early readers say that that comes through in the practicality of this book. So we've been talking really theological. This book has 24 practices in it. I, I, I don't want the book to just be interesting. Like, oh my gosh, I never thought of that before. That's great. What do we do with that? Once we understand that 100% of our time at work has the potential to matter for eternity, how do we make our current job matter more in the grand scheme of eternity? How do we store up, as Jesus said, through our work, more treasures in heaven and eternal rewards? How do we leverage our job to make more disciples in a post-Christian context without leaving tracks in the break room? That's where the rubber hits the road, and that's what I'm excited to unpack in the book. Yeah. So let's go back to something you said earlier. Give us a um, a treatise on why our work does matter right now and why it will endure. The work of our hands right now, how, how and why it can endure. Yeah, it's a great question. So the subtitle of this book is Four Ways Your Job Matters for Eternity Even When You're Not Sharing the Gospel. So let me give a let me give a high level overview of those. And then I'm gonna dig deep into how do the how does the literal work of our hands last for eternity? Because that's one of my favorite topics. So number one, your work matters for eternity because it's a vehicle for bringing God eternal pleasure. Psalm 37 23 says that the Lord directs the steps of the godly and delights in every detail of their lives. God does not just delight in watching you give money to Crossroads, right? He doesn't just delight. He delights in, in that greatly. You. Oh, it's one, of his greatest, greatly. it's one of his greatest delights. You can make God smile right now. Don't you want right to do now, that? Come on. At the affiliate link below. Uh, <laughs> no, listen, he delights in every Zoom meeting we lead, every email we type, every tree that we root out of the ground, anything we do with excellence and love and in a godly way is an ingredient to God's eternal pleasure. That's the first way your work matters for eternity. Number two, your work matters for eternity because through it, you could scratch off the thin veil between heaven and earth, revealing a glimpse of the kingdom of God in the present. That's very mysterious. We can unpack that more if you want. Number three, your work matters for eternity because it is largely through your work that you earn eternal rewards, which we never talk about in the church. And this is not to earn our salvation, right? right? right but we right. earn rewards that Jesus was right. constantly talking about treasures right. in heaven, increased job responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. Incentivizing us, incentivizing exactly. us by telling us about that. Let's, yes. Let's come back to this in a minute. And then finally, fourthly, York Myers for Eternity, because yes, you can leverage it to the instrumental end of sharing the gospel with those you work with. And in my experience, the people who are most effective at making disciples at work are the people who understand that their their time at work matters to God even when they're not sharing the gospel because those people who understand that 100% of it is seen by God are fully alive image bearers and that's who attracts the lost like honey attracts bees. So at a high level, those are four, and not a comprehensive list, right? But four of the ways our work matters for eternity. We can go deeper wherever you want to there, Brian. Yeah, well, let's let's go into the more tactical thing, or uh, yeah. mo maybe most practical. Do you believe it's possible for someone to be in construction and the house they've just built is yes. going to actually be in the next life? I, I I don't think it's just possible. I think it is probable if that house was constructed with excellence and love in accordance with God's commands. How can I say that? So first of all, there's so much bad theology we got to unpack here. First of all, we, we hit on heaven. Heaven, nobody is going to spend eternity in heaven. Not one person 
will spend eternity in heaven. We are going to spend eternity on the new earth when Christ fully and permanently rips the veil between God's dimension of heaven where the souls of the redeemed are with God right now in our dimension of earth and renews all things, okay? And on that earth, this is not merely a return to Eden. God could have described our eternal dwelling place as just a return to the Garden of Eden. That's not what he did. Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah has this prophetic vision, and he's looking at the New Jerusalem, and he sees the kings of the world coming into the New Jerusalem, but they're not coming empty-handed in their hands. They are bringing with them what Isaiah 60 calls the wealth of the nations. And then in a parallel vision in Revelation 21, John calls these the glory of the nations. What is this? Isaiah lists a few of them. He says that there are ships built by the nation of Tarshish, incense refined by some nation called Sheba, refined silver and gold. These are works of human hands. And Isaiah and John are watching Jesus welcome these cultural goods into the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The implication, of course, that these prophetic visions suggest is that some of the works of our hands, a house we're building, a book we're writing, a truck we're repairing, whatever, has the chance of literally and physically lasting onto the new earth as an offering of worship to Christ. Who was it? Was Stephen? That, that's excellent. Thank you. The, who was that? That uh, oh, Stephen Covey, way, way, way back when, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of his habits was start with the end in mind. Yes. And I think this is really important for us because what what is our end? Is We could say my end is when I die. My end is, you know, whenever it is. And a lot of Christians, their end in mind is, I go to heaven. This is really important because if we're going to start with the end of mind, what we have as that end is critical. And we're already touching on some of these fallacies right now. You yeah. said we don't live in heaven forever. I, when I say we live in heaven forever, I'm, I'm defining because heaven is here on this earth. We're living here that's forever. Right. But, that's you right. know, we have these things like, okay, that's my, if my end is some immaterial existence, Jesus got resurrected from the dead, modeling just as Romans says, just as the same spirit who gave life to his mortal body, resurrected from the dead, will give life to your mortal body as well. We're resurrected yes. physically. So there has to be yes. some place to, for us to go physically. It's it's here in this planet. So that's one thing. If our end in mind is some ethereal, milky existence in the clouds, that's going to tell us here that pound and nails is, is is of nothing. And then the other- yeah, and Oh, by the way, Brian, yeah. sorry, before we move please, on. Please, please. Because you brought up the resurrected Christ as a template for what we can expect for eternity, right? Yep. Uh, not only does that show physical continuity of our bodies, but in the resurrected Christ, there's also physical continuity of the work of human hands. Think about this. Right. Those nail scars in Jesus' hands that we're going to see for eternity, that were a part of the resurrected- that was an act of obscenity, of evil, of the work of human hands. But even that work has been redeemed and is physically present for all eternity with us. Yes. Right. Well, and this is uh, touched on another thing, the end in mind that's wrong. You know, we've, we hear people say, well, I hope you like worshiping because if you don't like worshiping, you're going to have an awful time in heaven. That's all we're going to do is sing to, sing to Jesus along with all the angels. And uh, of course, the problem there is uh, nowhere in the Bible do angels sing. They don't sing. <laughs> they, when they come at Christmas, they say 
They say things. They say things. Secondly, this afterworld, like if all I'm talking about is an endless worship service, yeesh, yeesh. We can worship for eternity and connect with God for eternity by singing. That can happen. But also by subduing, ruling, building, all the things that you you and I may love to do physically. Who says those things end? Uh, not God. Uh, I'll tell you, tell you that for free. Listen, most of us spend more time planning a one-week vacation than we do thinking about eternity. And <laughs> right. what happens is we, wow. we settle for these wishy-washy half-truths peddled by culture about heaven. Then we do the whole truth found in scripture. And one of those half-truths, as you pointed out, that I talk about in the sacredness of secular work is that we will worship for all eternity. And that's not true. The whole truth is that we will worship by singing sure and also working with our hands. Let me just give you one biblical passage of many as evidence. Isaiah 65. God says, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. My people will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands and they will not labor in vain. God's word doesn't say that we will sing, Lord, I lift your name on high forever and ever, or recline in a hammock forever and ever. We will reign with Christ and for Christ forever and ever. And that means in part that we will work with him forever. And if you love your job, oh my word, that promise should make you ecstatic about the new earth. And oh, by the way, if you hate your job, that promise should give you great hope because there is coming a day when every one of God's chosen people will long enjoy the work of their hands. And this is work as it was meant to be pre-sin. Without the thorns and thistles of the curse, it is work that is challenging but satisfying, difficult but fruitful, all honey and no bees. Right. Uh, The curse was fruitless labor, not labor. Correct. Um, Correct. Right now I'm doing some things with my hands that I think regularly – I may be doing this forever. I'm restoring a 1978 Jeep CJ7. It's great. And I'm thinking, you know what? I, I might be restoring old muscle cars in heaven. That 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 could be really fun. I'm I'm planning on building a barn on my property, a little you know a little side, not a huge massive thing, but just something with wood siding, kind of fun. And I'm, I really geek out over that process. It's one of the reasons why I've never thought about, or I've never really seriously considered buying a second house. It isn't just because I don't have the money to buy a second house, but it's also because I would love the building of it. And then once it's built, I don't know that I'd actually use it. Because I, I like the process of of forming things, building things. That's that's a sacred thing, and I don't I don't think that stops in heaven. It doesn't stop in heaven. I'll give you one more reason uh, not to buy the second house. Yeah. This is tied to what we've been talking about. It's eternal rewards, right? I, I the the whole concept of a bucket list. Um, I listen. I got no inherent problem with the bucket list. I do have a problem with the underlying thought process of it. The whole idea assumes that the only chance we have to enjoy the best places, the best experiences, like a second home this world has to offer, is when we die and kick the bucket. That's a lie that the devil is peddling in this day and age. And once we re- replace these half truths about heaven peddled by culture with the whole truth of the scripture, we see that we're going to have all eternity to, to experience these things, but. As you mentioned a few minutes ago, Brian, Scripture also makes it clear that while our entrance into the kingdom of heaven is by grace through faith, the rewards we receive will vary widely 
based on how we steward this life. And so for yeah. that reason, man, I think more Christians need to be building anti-bucket lists, catalogs of things we will strive not to do on this side of eternity so that we can accumulate as many eternal rewards as possible. For me, I got the money to buy a second, third home. I haven't done that. And I'm not saying that's wrong for you. I'm just convicted that's wrong for me. I'm choosing to sacrifice that pleasure so that I can store up more eternal rewards. And will God reward me with a second, third home in the new earth? I don't know. But I do know that whatever that reward is will be far more easily worth it compared to what I sacrificed in this life. But if you have that money, you're not sacrificing it. You're saving it. Well, I'm spending it for you. I'm investing it for eternity. Okay. Okay. That money's not in my bank account. I'm investing it. All right. What? Investing in your brokerage account or investing in ministries? I'm investing it in things that I think will last for eternity. Right. And yes, that includes. A yeah. lot of ministries. Uh, uh, this, the the, the t- savings is another one to press up on. We're blurring the lines between our topic here. I'm 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 in a um, I'm in a uh, I've started coaching other senior pastors, so I've got a Zoom call with them once a month, and I follow up with them, and I'm just sharing some things with them. and And one of the things that we've really bumped into is philosophy of money, and everyone wants to know how Crossroads has grown as fast as we have and as, as large as we are. And, you know, everyone wants to, but no one wants to do the things that we've done. So I tell people, yeah, we've got, uh, right now we have uh, three weeks cash on hand. And they're like, wait, what, 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 but then you got like your brokerage. Got, no, 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 three, three weeks. Is this unusual for you? I, I said, I said, so this unusual. I said, uh, no. No, we've been sometimes 10 days. I think the most we've ever had is two months. And, uh, and I said, what, what are you saving your money for? All savings is, is delayed spending. That's all it is. You're saving it because you're waiting to have enough to spend it on something. And then someone will invariably say, Hey, uh, um, but yeah, but you know, there was, there was Joseph who, uh, had to save for seven years to have six years for the famine and all that stuff. And I say, well, okay, for, first of all, first of all, one, God told him that in no uncertain term. He told him. Exactly. And, right. And two, he did spend it all that was meant to be spent. <laughs> and three, I've been, I'm in Crossroads for, for 28 years now. I've been through four famine cycles and we've never had a famine. And I say to these guys, anybody else I said, saving it for what? For a rainy day? It's raining. It's raining right now. Do you not see what's happening in the world? Do you not see the border crisis? Do you not see the poverty situation? Do you not see church attendance going down, 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 suicide going up, up, up? Do you not see that there's not enough credible witnesses of who Jesus is? Save for rain. It's raining. I can't imagine a scenario where it's more rainy than it is right now. And I think the reason why we've we've globbed on these things and held on to these things is we really don't believe in heaven and we really do not believe in a reward in heaven. We like the sermon. We like the philosophy. But this is called the aggressive life. Very, very, very few people actually live what they say. Flying K Ranch. 
Today's episode is brought to you by them because I believe they're producing some of the most mouth-watering, healthy burgers, steaks, roasts I've ever had. They're in Findlay, Ohio. Flying K raises their beef with no hormones or antibiotics, so you know you're getting the most natural product. It's a family business partnering with state and national certification boards to ensure both cattle and customers are happy. You can find out more, place your orders at Flying kranchangus.com that's flying k ranchangus.com i'm liking it a lot taking care of your health isn't always easy but it should be at least simple that's why for the last 2 years i've been drinking ag1 every day no exceptions at home on a hunting trip Camping off my motorcycle, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel ready to get moving. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to have it in the morning. I have a 12 ounce of water, so right off the bat, I'm I'm helping my hydration every single morning. This is the one product, if I had to recommend one, I'd recommend this one to elevate your health. It's AG1, and that's why I partnered with them for two years. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 plus K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash aggressive life. That's drinkag1.com slash aggressive life. Get yourself some. That's exactly right. We we don't have, we don't, we'll answer the question correctly on a quiz, but we don't actually believe in no. a physical eternity no, on earth we do not. and we also have bought bought this ridiculous false piety that says that we shouldn't be motivated by eternal rewards that oh i should be motivated enough by god's glory listen <laughs> jesus told us to be motivated by rewards over and over right. and over and over and over i think i say 25 right. passages in my book of this dr randy alcorn says yes while it may sound selfish to chase after eternal rewards, it is Christ's command to us so we should eagerly obey it. If we maintain that it's wrong to be motivated by rewards, we bring a serious accusation against Christ. Right. End quote. Mike drop, right? Like, but but that's what's at stake here. We 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 are being disobedient yeah. to Jesus Christ when we do not chase after e- after eternal rewards, everybody's chasing after reward. The question is, are you chasing after the reward of man's favor and approval in the present or God's favor and rewards, very concrete rewards for eternity? Right. Yeah. And the Bible says you reap what you sow because it's trying to incentivize us to change our behavior so that we get more, (laughs) more of what matters. Um, yes. yeah, if we could, gosh, we would all have such a gift if we could probably all have wiped out of our brains, anything we've been taught about Jesus and the Bible and just read the Bible with fresh eyes and without our biases, something might happen. It might be really, really cool. I love it. Okay. So here, here, let, let's talk about something else here. And, and I, I'll, I'll give you two of my frustrations. I'm going to give you a lobby up with a softball and I'd like you to 
you know, just hit these things. I'm frustrated with younger people and I'm frustrated with older people. Who do you me want too. me to, who, do you, right. who do you want me to vent my frustrations about first? Uh young people. Okay. Go for it. Young people. I am frustrated how many young people expect to find work that actualizes them, expect that all they should do is follow their passion expect that they should have some meaningful work, meaningful as defined by something that's humanitarian, something that plays well in social media and aren't embracing things like welding, <laughs> pouring concrete yes. or just it's called a job. It's called work. I'm frustrated how many people are buying into this follow your passion defined by my work is going to make me feel good and actualize. It's just not the kind of work I see in people's lives who I admire and in the Bible. Agree, disagree? I, both. Okay. Both. So I do think we can find a lot of joy and meaning at work. In, in, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, hey, there's nothing better than to eat, drink, enjoy the labor God has given you because that's a gift from God. The problem is a lot of young people are looking for work to bring them ultimate and cosmic joy. It's that old, uh, old advice I used to get of, uh, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. That's garbage advice, right? You know how I know? Yep. Genesis 3 says, curses the ground. It, work will be painful toil until <laughs> the day I die, <laughs> right? And right. so we got to accept that work is, even, even if you find a, a job you love, I love my work, right? But there are days where it feels like a J-O-B job, right? Yep. And it's always going to be that way until the new earth when we will long enjoy the work of our hands. Yeah, that's a good point. I think the people who are talking about find a job you love, you never you know work a day in your life. Those are generally wealthier, older people who've really arrived, and we forget about what it was like in in the twenties. You know, we we forget that you you do earn a right to a kind of work that you can really enjoy much more than when you first start out. I just I just, yeah. I, I just think old fashioned work ethic is just hard to find. I, I, there was a senior person here on, on staff at Crossroads. Crossroads, what do we have, Dirt? We have too many staff. What is it? 350? Uh, uh, I think it's 350. All right, 350. Like that, yeah. And uh, a, a senior staff member told me that they had a uh, younger staff member come to them and say, hey, how do I, how do I start making more of a contribution around here, having my, have my voice heard, um, have a say in things? And uh, he said to them, he said, loyalty, you show that you're loyal over the long haul. And that is not what this young staff person wanted to hear. They just thought if they, you know, if they had smart things to say that they could influence an organization. Yeah, you do after years and years and years and years and years and years of hitting the same nail and, and, and being shown that you're faithful, not thoughtful, actually faithful. And I think that, um, I think it's characteristic that we all need to be reminded of. Yeah, no doubt. And passion follows mastery, not the other way around. In my experience, oh, you, know, you get to oh, that's you good. get to love what you do. Oh, that's good. By getting really, really good at it. why? Because we are made in the image of the one who came to serve and not be served. The passion hypothesis is all about what a job can give me. Mm, I want right. instantaneous cosmic satisfaction from my job. Hey, you you you'll find big joy job that you love when you get freaking great at it in service of other people. There's actually a really good study out of Yale. Uh, this is going back on seven, eight years ago now by this doctor. I don't believe she's a believer. Her name's Amy Resneski. 
And she she's studied over. She spent her whole career. She is. I, le- I led her. To, I led her to Christ last week. Actually, she's she's a believer. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Praise God. Yeah. Uh, that she spent her whole career <laughs> studying what leads people to describe their work as a calling as opposed to a job or a career. She studied this with doctors, administrative assistants, whatever. Number one predictor, not whether or not I was passionate about the work when I started it. The number one predictor describing your work as a calling is the number of years you have spent practicing your craft. Why? Passion follows mastery, not the other way around. What a great line. Passion follows mastery. Great. Okay, so enough for the younger folks. Here's my older folk rant. I am I am tired. And by older, it could just be someone who's 40, right? Yeah. I am just tired of talking to people who have careers that are going really well where they're making big jack and having big influence in their sector who think that the next step is is working at a nonprofit. I don't I don't understand the fantasy with getting out of the the secular into the sacred. I don't understand the fantasy of getting out of making money to begging people to give money to support your nonprofit. I, I, invariably, there's not been a person I've met who've, who I've seen and talked that through. Invariably, there's not a single person who well, I haven't said to them, that is a stupid goal. You need, you need to stay where you are, influence the industry you're in, make great things, and give a larger percentage of your income to the nonprofit because they're spending a lot more of their time than you think thinking about how to get people like you to give them money. That's Amen. the only way they survive. But for that believer, and this is real, if the Great Commission is the only commission, is they're implicitly and explicitly told every single week from the pulpit. Right. It makes all the sense of the world to it leave. Does. It I does. don't want you to just want to get the Great Commission it ain't does. the only commission. The first commission of Genesis 1 to make culture does not negate or cancel out the call to make disciples. Never once in scripture does God retract this first commission. And by the way, you know this, Brian, Matthew 28, go and make disciples. Go is not the command in the original Greek, right? A better translation is as you are going Make disciples. The actually, going I did, is actually, I did not know that. I did not okay, know that. Okay, all right, go, let's, let's go, go, ahead, go, here. go let's give, here. Give me a sermon. Go ahead. So the Greek word that we translate to go and go and make disciples, get real nerdy for a second, yeah. is what's called an aorist tense passive participle. It's past tense. A far better translation, according to New Testament scholars, and you see this in the literal translation of the Bible, is as you are going make disciples. The going was assumed. Jesus had assumed that they had already gone from that place and were already in the process of making disciples. And that changes everything for you and me. Everything. The Great Commission is not something you do only when you go on a short-term missions trip or go and leave your job to be a quote-unquote full-time missionary. The Great Commission is something we are to be doing every day as we are going about the thing we are already doing, i.e. the first commission to make this world more useful for other human beings' benefit and enjoyment. I like that. So are there other commissions that we might not be seeing? You got the first commission, which is there in Genesis. You got the quote-unquote yeah. great commission in the end of yeah. Matthew. Also, I'm going to have to look at the beginning of Acts to see if that participle is still there. That's really good because certainly, though, they still did go. They still got on ships and went to they places. Still went. But the, and we but still need people to literally right. go. Is yeah, there, for there, sure. Are there other commissions we should have our minds on? Listen, Jesus gave us 50 unique commandments, right? 
so there's lots of commands we are called to obey. I would argue these are the two big commissions that everything else falls under, right? The first commission to make this earth more useful for other human beings, benefit, enjoyment, and serve as God's rightful representatives in this world, i.e. be holy as I am holy, right? And this new great commission to make disciples as we go about that work. Yeah. This this thing of work is, it's just so... It's so rich and unmined. I'm so thankful that you've unmined that. Again, as a person who's done some grunt work, maybe not physical grunt work, but just not just difficult, stressful, unspiritual work. I just I think this is just great. One of the one of the ways that Jesus came alive to me was when I realized that uh, he wasn't a carpenter. You know, the the Bible uses a word there. It's technon, which we've translated as carpenter but it really means somebody who's just really technically supreme and really, really good in the trades. And most scholars now believe that it's most likely that he was a, uh, he, he worked, he was a builder and probably used yeah. stone. We yeah. know that because, um, his metaphors were all stone, stone metaphors, a lot of building metaphors, not a lot of wood, just one about taking the log out of your own eye. And also Nazareth is a stone quarry place. And, and here's where it really gets, comes alive for me. Uh, when you take a look at stuff like how he fed the 5,000, he, he divides them up like he's doing a work site, you know, put the people here, put the, just like a foreman does in the work site. Jesus becomes much more rich to me when I see him not as a carpenter who is by himself in his shop making a table for somebody, though he may have done that and he could have done that. But he comes out to me when I see like that he dealt with the stress of hitting payroll. He dealt with the strategic logistics of how high to make my bid. He he dealt with how to have a problem employee. And he always had problems employees. Even his 12 disciples, Judas was a problem. <laughs> you know, he just, he becomes more rich with me. I realized that, gosh, he went through work stresses. Yes. Yeah, no doubt. And but this this truth has become too familiar to us, I think. You know, g- given the trajectory of Jesus' life, redeeming all things, the fact that he spent what most scholars estimate to be 80% of his adult life doing what you just described, Brian, should stop us in our tracks because God right. could have chosen for Jesus to grow up in the home of a priest like John the Baptist, where he would spend all of his days doing the spiritual work of prayer. He could have chosen for him to grow up in the home of a Pharisee like Paul, where he would spend all day long doing the spiritual work of studying Torah. Instead, he chose in his sovereignty for Jesus to grow up in the home of a small business owner named Joseph, where he would spend the vast majority of his time negotiating and making things with his hands. And if that doesn't give you, believer, intrinsic value to the work you do to make this world more useful for others today. I don't know what does. Jordan, how old are, old are you? 37. When did you come into relationship with, with Christ? By God's grace, seven, but seriously, when I was probably about 20. Okay. Uh, what's your, what's your reading habits, study habits, all that stuff. I, what I'm, what I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get people inspired. Like you, you have a real good grasp on, on the word of God and history. And, and you know, you're, you're a normal schmo. You're not normal, but you know, you're, you're a working stiff. That's I'm done. not pastoring a church. Right. Right. And, and I'm running a text card. Yes. So the, the, when I'm talking to you, I'm going, man, this is, this guy can play at the highest levels in terms of spiritual wisdom and knowledge and all that stuff. So what, 
all of us can operate in your spiritual wealth. So what's your, what's your basic yes. disciplines? How, how have you gotten to where you are right now? All right. So I, I spend, I try to spend an hour on the word every day. That's hard in some seasons, especially when I'm traveling, but that's the goal. I also read a ton of books and I'll give you like a really practical tip. The most valuable app I pay for on a monthly basis is an app called Readwise. I only read on Kindle because my Kindle syncs with Readwise and takes all of my highlights and notes and automatically uploads them to Evernote for me. And you can upload these to whatever app you want to. But that's been a game changer for me because this book, The Sacredness of Secular Work, I've been using highlights and notes that I took 10 years ago Mm. on books, right? So I've been just collecting and collecting and collecting all these ideas in a repository where I can actually make something of those notes and those highlights. And if you look at at this book, I think a third of this book are endnotes. I think there's 400 endnotes in this book. And I credit Readwise for helping me keep track of it all over these years. Uh, I would say it's 25% of the book is endnotes, but still it's, it's pretty significant. I'm, I'm, it's I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Okay. I didn't end notes. You're saying there's an app cause I'm, I'm all Kindle all the time too. So you're yeah. saying there's an oh. app that syncs with my Kindle account and will capture everything I've dog-eared and highlighted. Ever in the past and in the future, automatically. Why, why did you not tell me this to begin with? We would have ended this interview immediately. I wouldn't even need you. I would have said, I got what I need. I'm done. Dirt, are you on this? <laughs> got it. You're not a Kindle guy, are you? I'm not. I'm, a, I'm an uh, old school paper guy. Uh, this, this this app has converted more people to Kindle than, it's than com- Okay, give it to me again. I'm sorry. Real, read, spell it out. Read Readwise. R-E-A-D-W-I-S-E. Uh, I think I spend $6 a month for this. Wow. 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 Yeah. Dirt, Dirt's, Dirt's not going to do Kindle with me. He, he, the only reason he reads books is so he has one thing that might be rubbing, rubbing up against his hands that's clean and might be making him clean. <laughs> that's that's his thing. It's like his daily washing to turn pages. That's right. That's fair. <laughs> Dude, this has been crazy. Is there, is there anything you want to talk about that um, I haven't asked you about? Man, I think you've hit on a lot of it. I, 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 I would just... I would just leave listeners with Psalm 37, 23 once again. The Lord directs the steps of the godly and delights in every detail of their lives. And if you believe that, that will transform how you see your purpose at work, not just the spiritual stuff God delights in. Anything you do with excellence and love and in a godly way is an ingredient to God's eternal pleasure. And so lean into the Great Commission, yes, but also the First Commission, knowing that filling this earth and subduing it is the very thing God created you to do, redeemed you to do, and what you're going to be doing for eternity. All right, last question. Yeah. Because we've spent all of our time trying to give people value, to, to yep. see their current job with value and to stay in their current job. At least that's been my my yeah. my motivation. So last question, how, how do you know when you should leave your job, how do you know when you should look for something else? Is there any telltale signs? Man, that's such a good question. I, I talked to Russell Moore about this recently uh, on my podcast when he was thinking about leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. And I love the advice that Tim Keller gave him privately that he shared publicly on my podcast. He says, if your natural inclination is to leave somewhere, you should probably stay. Until it's abundantly clear you should leave. And if your natural inclination is to stay, right, then you should probably consider leaving sooner rather than later. So I I don't know how practical that is for listeners, but I think about that a lot uh, since Russell told that to me. I would also also say this. 
if it's becoming abundantly clear in your time in the word, if there are coincidences that you can't explain of people asking you to do the same thing that would require you to leave your job, yeah, that might be the Holy Spirit's leaving. But absent that, stay where you are. Do that job with excellence and love. See Paul's commands in scripture. I think it's 1 Corinthians 7 where new believers are like, what now? And he said, uh, stay where you are, where God called you, when God called you. And just do that job for God's glory and the good of others. Man, give us an advertisement for yourself. Tell us how to find this book and do anything else you want to do. Yeah, so the book's called The Sacredness of Secular Work. You can buy it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. But hey, pre-ordering books is weird, so I'm giving everybody an incentive to pre-order it before February 3rd. If you do and go to jordanrainer.com and enter your order number, you can enter to win this epic trip we're giving away for you and a friend to go to France for a week to rehearse your eternal vocation of ruling and working with King Jesus on the new earth. You're going to go to the most epic castle you've ever seen to rehearse Revelation 22.5 of reigning with Christ forever and ever. You're going to go to a vineyard where we're going to practice planting vineyards and eating their fruits, see Isaiah 65, and a whole bunch of other cool stuff that you can find at jordanrainer.com. You're going to have a one-on-one trip with people to Europe, just a random so, person who enters? Yeah. And we're going to pick a random person. They're going to go with their friend for a week, and then I'm going to meet them for dinner uh, oh, okay, to encourage good. them about the sacredness of their work. Yeah, because yeah. you could have a draining person for a whole week. To oh, hang that'd out be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to spend a week with Jordan Rainer. Trust me. <laughs> Dirt, why don't we think of these ideas? Man, what a great, great idea. idea. Yeah, that's, that's okay. Our next book, we're just going to say, you know, Put your order number and you can come and like we'll slam a beer. Whoever drinks it faster, or something like that. I'm like I'm not taking people to France, but that's I'll take you to the that's, woods. That's pretty impressive. We can, go, we can go camp. No, I'm not even. I'm not gonna commit to camp with somebody. Are you kidding me? All you with get the, is a beer with the wrong person. That'd be horrible. That's true. I could I could slug a beer with anybody. Like camping with somebody is sacred for me. Gosh, okay, all right, okay, that's true. <laughs> all right, folks. You just got a master class on understanding some things you might not have understood before, and even some thoughts that. Jordan Ryan might have dropped on you that uh, are maybe beyond what you might have been thinking spiritually. That's okay. We're not here just to give you new thoughts. So I think you got a bunch of them. You're here to give yourself something to get moving. Take a step. Take an aggressive step. Aggressive step could be you lose your job, leave your job. Probably not. Aggressive step is probably going to be you're going to go to your boss and tell him how thankful you are for your job and ask for more responsibility. Probably a more aggressive move is going to just push back your retirement day whenever you thought that that was going to be because you're going to value work, whatever it is, put this into place. Let's work about it. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Thanks for joining us on this journey toward aggressive living. Find more resources, articles, past episodes, and live events over at bryantome.com. My new books, a repackaged edition of The Five Marks of a Man and a brand new Five Marks of a Man tactical guide are open right now on Amazon. If you haven't yet, leave this podcast a rating and review. It really helps get the show in front of new listeners. And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram at Brian Tome. The Aggressive Life is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.